my stage name is Honey Tree Evil Eye. So if anybody is interested in that kind of stuff, Honey Tree Evil Eye, hello. Uh, yes. Um, so I found burlesque when I was in grad school. Um, so I was a go-go at a lesbian bar, RIP. There aren't a lot of those anymore. And uh, I could see that that facet of the industry was headed away. There aren't a lot of go-go gigs anymore. That's not really necessarily so much a thing as it used to be. But I could see that burlesque was was definitely popping up. And it also afforded the opportunity to have more expression. Burlesque gives you the opportunity to be uh, funny, silly, stupid, gross, scary, political. You could be absolutely anything you want to. where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring to you today the Dr. Timory Schmidt. She holds the PhD in Human Sexuality Education from Widener University. There are so many incredible things that she does. She is a sexuality educator. She is a dance and fitness instructor. She is a burlesque dancer performing under the name Honey Tree Evil Eye. She is a, an author with a weekly column in the Philadelphia Weekly. She is a comedian, a storyteller, the ultimate multi-hyphenate. A quick content warning off the top, this episode does include some indirect references to childhood trauma, some references to sexuality and human reproductive anatomy, and some explicit language. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free, switch this one off, and we will catch you in the next one. We go on to talk about the history of burlesque, how burlesque satirizes the aristocracy, eat the rich, being flexible, being present, practicing gratitude and self-care, the cost of art and compensating performers fairly, and so much more. I was so incredibly grateful to have this chat to Dr. Timory. Please enjoy our conversation. Hey, Dr. Timory. Um, so good to see you. Yes, I'm so excited for this. Um, my, my first my first memory of, of watching you perform, um, you used to have a show um, where we're sem semi-regularly, I think back in, in 2014, 2015, um, uh, you, per you performed with Drunk Piano and Underground Art. Oh, uh, yeah. I actually, yeah, and I still get to work with some of those folks to this day. It was such a great gig like uh to be surrounded by live music on a monday night like that's a good vibe and then there were pancakes that were coming out at midnight that were free <laughs> like what is happening it was great who doesn't love a midnight pancake yeah yeah and then there would be like these random super professional uh musicians who would just happen to be in town and they don't have gigs on monday and then like and like ween would end up performing with us um, in a, in a weird story, I have like two or three famous people who have seen me perform and I've never seen them perform live. <laughs> I, I think if there's anything that I miss more, like being someone who also works in, in the entertainment industry, I miss there being things to do on a Monday on the day off. Yeah. Yeah. Like I also ran a burlesque show that was weekly on Mondays for a long time. Actually like drunk piano sort of 
uh, came to an end when the the ownership changed to the venue. Um, yeah. And we started a new weekly burlesque show and it really created an opportunity for burlesquers to hang out with each other and just for the community to sort of coalesce because it was like $7 cover. So like, you know, come in and just hang out and like you can get some food yeah. and, and just see the variety of people that are in the scene. And I don't think people understood how big the scene was getting until, you, you know, like we sustained a weekly show for years. I was so grateful that there are spaces that are so broad like that, that that it feels like one of the precursors of the level of inclusivity that we're starting to see in Philly theater. Ooh, tell me more about that. I don't know that much about the theater situation. No, like like I, I know a little bit from the comedy scene of spaces. I have a couple of friends that are in the Philly theater company show that's running right now. Um, what is it? Tattooed Lady. Um, and... Then I see more in the improv theaters and helium, but more of more of my um, more of my non cis male friends are having to do a lot less work to get on shows. More of my friends of color are having to do a lot less work to get on shows. That's great. And um, or or casting directors are making making in 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 some cases are, are are doing colorblind casting which just feels like progress and and i haven't fully worked out this this theorem but but i suspect that that the the broadness of burlesque and cabaret in the small shows like really had a hand in creating the environment where that could happen uh i would love to give burlesque credit for that i don't i don't know if that's uh like Historically, I, I just assume it's like almost always it's the performers of color who are just like, come on, and then like drag everyone into the future. Uh, but like one of the things that I do love about the burlesque scene is that it is always been. I mean, it has a definitely a problematic history as, you know, anything that has happened in America. <laughs> like definitely. There's definitely there's connections yeah. to yeah. minstrelry. There were definitely like lots of things about it that were not great when burlesque clubs were run by the mafia and, and all that kind of stuff. But that said, in the whole time I've been involved, which is a pretty long time, it has always been yeah. much more diverse in its like depictions of beauty because there are so many different types of bodies that are beautiful yeah. and you wouldn't get that impression from a lot of art forms. And I'd say that you have a much better shot of being able to make a career in burlesque with... um with any variety of identities, um, we have shows that are specifically for fat identified performers. There are there's an entire disabilities, I think might be the name of it, uh, disability uh, burlesque festival. Um, that one we still have a ways to go, especially in Philly, because very few of the venues are actually accessible. Sure. Um, so that's that's a ways to go. But yeah, I think the scene has always been well, the art form has always been something that people went to. Um, if they were gender non-conforming, if they were queer, it was always a safe space. It's safe, is relative, yeah, yeah. safe first space. And and a lot of the legends that I would I would talk to, and by legends I mean literally someone who just did it before us. <laughs> this is basically the honorific we give them. Um, some of them were like queer women yeah. or just you know like uh, disobedient girls who didn't want to have to get married and work at the you know like the phone company and if you wanted to be able to live a life independently um 
it paid much better than anything else that women were going to be able to do. So uh, it's always historically been yeah. populated by these like rebellious queer women. And, you know, some of them would get their asses beat by the cops um, and that kind of stuff. But um, there right. were performers that we would possibly describe as trans looking back. Um, but like they may may not have had that vocabulary so i can't like apply it to them but it definitely would have been a space for trans performers had we had that like vocab and it's still still very much um that's one of the things i love about it yeah yeah you you answered my follow-up question can can you speculate a little bit if even i i don't know how much history we had but um you you gave it beautifully um I'm very struck by the fact that this, the history of this art form is one that is formed from a space of resistance, oh, yeah. from a space of not just resistance of like mind and things that we can think about and, and write in a paper. All those, those things are important too, but this, there's a very embodied sense of resistance that like our, our bodies are on the line. Literally they're, they're what we are using to, to generate our potential livelihood they're the things that are that are being being harmed um when when the the machine fights back against it um i just that that just feels like such a profound and important thing i guess i don't know if there is a question still but well i think what what it reminds me of is just like the origin of burlesque in general. And I love teaching like burlesque 101s that a lot of people, when they teach a burlesque 101, it's, it's largely a movement based class. And it's just about like feeling saucy and your own skin and that kind of stuff, which is definitely like a part of it. But for me personally, like the really, really big yeah. piece of introducing new burlesquers is uh, explaining to them the origin of the art form, because it has not always been so easy to get into. And it wasn't always a thing that people did for fun. And so that they could feel like body positivity, like the origin of burlesque, the word borla is joke. It's satire. It's inherently an anti-aristocratic art form and not necessarily anti, but just like mocking. Like a lot of the features of mm. early burlesque on stage. And of course, burlesque, even before that was a literary genre dating back like centuries. But um, on stage, it yeah. was basically like a big, can I cuss on this show? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. We're, we're no, we, okay, we've earned our, uh, we've earned a, you know, our it's like a big rating. fuck you to the aristocracy. So like, for instance, for instance, like a lot of our uh, aesthetics that are associated with classic burlesque, you're going to think of like long opera gloves. You're going to like the opera length gloves. You're going to think about lots of rhinestones, maybe a bustle, you know, something like that. Um, and thinking in the context of late 19th century theater, if you are a woman on the theater stage at that time you are a sex worker that's how they were viewed it's just you're a woman on stage you're a whore yeah. right and so they like kind of leaned into it and then um they like a burlesque performer might come out in like basically those same sort of ideas right so on one side of town on saturday night all the rich people yeah. went to the opera and they were dressed in this finery and then on the other side of the town because uh, burlesque has always been a very working class art form, historically speaking. It's now, you know, something a little bit different. But, um, you know, you'd have your burlesque stages where they're wearing like basically like a mimicry of that and then showing off their goodies. And it's and it's, you know, in the cultural context, like a big fuck you. So there would be comedians and there are lots of vignettes and sketches and that kind of stuff 
and a lot of it was um you know it's just like working class resistance like and again it would be a much more inclusive art form than like certainly the more elites yeah. would have been observing at the time um and so it's always just sort of had that and then it it changed a little bit like when all the comedians went to radio it sort of killed vaudeville um and burlesque has just sort of continued to survive by shifting and changing um and it's it's just never been the same thing for very long and that's why it continues to exist so like it branched off into go-go and then strip clubs and you know, we've always had this like mixed history yeah. of drag performance, and now drag performers make so much more money than burlesqueers yeah. by a long shot. Uh, but we do still have a, a combined shared history there. Yeah. Is there? You, you've talked about how much it's changed, it's grown, it's morphed, mutated, adapted. Are there recurring sort of strands that feel mostly the same as it's continued to develop? Well, I think what what I ask people when they want to get into it, uh, especially if they want to produce, is like, what? Yeah. You're not competing against other burlesque shows. You're competing against the couch. You know, like you're competing against every other option for entertainment. So, what is it about some yeah. form of entertainment that people are going to? Why is somebody going to pay $750 to see Taylor Swift? Right. Like, what is it about that? Like, we have to, like, no shade, no shade. Like, people should yeah. spend money the way yeah. they want to that brings them joy. Um, but like, what is it about your experience that the audience is going to get? I, I want to tailor the experience yes. to the people who are supporting the show and also the performers. I want the performers to have fun. But what is the kind of show that I would want to go to? And so two of the big strands of burlesque that helped bring it back from one of its many near deaths in the 90s uh, was the, it's sort of as two, like a bifurcation, nerdlesque, which is basically taking an existing property and then burlesquing it. So like, watching spider-man go grocery shopping and then he you know like ends up at the sex toy store or like you know like that kind of thing they're basically character studies or some people make it more of like a sexy cosplay but you know the idea is you're taking an existing property that people are familiar yeah. with and, and they get to play with it so people like that because like i already like star wars and so yes i would like to see a bb-8 strip <laughs> like or whatever so there's one one branch that has really helped the the field succeed and the other one is this sort of like yeah. retro aesthetic like this harkening back to a time where it would have been really fancy and really special to get to see somebody strip in in person and so that side of the industry yeah. is much more about lots of rhinestones and having maybe like more retro yeah. pinup-y aesthetics and you know, the feather fans and those sort of things. And that's not the only thing that's burlesque, but what that appeals to is a sense of this is special and luxurious and I'm a big business person and, you know, I'm going to drink my old fashioned and, and watch the 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 leg show, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and exclusive. Oh, yeah, yeah. In that way, very much so. And, it, you know, like the idea of like a speakeasy or you're going to do it at some weird place or at some very fancy place and... um that definitely is still a major part of the industry. And those those are gigs yeah. that, uh, you know, the showgirl gigs that are yeah. sometimes lucrative, sometimes are more about prestige. You'd be surprised to hear what gigs pay the best, actually. Because <laughs> there's, okay. like, there's, some, there's some burlesque gigs that are known as being like this incredibly big deal, these really, really prestigious things. The tickets cost a ton, yeah. the space is beautiful, and the performers get paid like 75 bucks. Sure. 
which is not a lot for a night of work as a stripper. So, like, um, you might, yeah, you'd be surprised to hear what pays well, and you know, those kind of things. I mean, that's that's almost the the paying level of like improv. Well, I'm glad improv <laughs> is getting paid at all because a lot of them are paying to yeah, get to do yes. it. I want to. I want to ask a, a little bit about just where the how you how you discover this art form, and where where the enduring love of of it. Comes okay, from. I should also say since we ended up pivoting, not even pivoting, just going into burlesque. My stage name is Honey Tree Evil Eye. So if anybody is interested in that good stuff, Honey Tree Evil Eye. Hello, uh, yes. Whoa, whoa. Um, so I found burlesque when I was in grad school. Um, so I was a go-go at a lesbian bar, RIP. There aren't a lot of those anymore. And uh, no. I could see that that facet of the industry was headed away. There aren't a lot of go-go gigs anymore. That's not really yeah. necessarily so much a thing as it used to be. But I could see yeah. that burlesque was was definitely popping up. And it also afforded the opportunity to have more individual expression because uh, it's a go-go, like the DJ's picking yeah. the music, and really all I have is uh-huh. my body as the instrument, which is cool. It works for me as a dancer, but I, I have other stuff I could say, and burlesque gives you the opportunity to be uh, funny, silly, stupid, gross, scary, political. You could be absolutely anything you want to in 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 some in some facets of burlesque. So that very much appealed to me, and uh, despite having very little experience, I was like, I'm going to start producing so I can create more opportunities for myself to perform. So I started producing, like, immediately, and then learned on the job. <laughs> you you have st- struck me as, uh, like, I-, I followed your career via socials a little bit during the pandemic. You, if I'm right about the burlesque, and, and, and this is not an industry that I would claim to know enough about, except as a person who's come to shows occasionally um, and has supported friends who have had shows, um, is that it it don't work during the pandemic. Well, that was a thing. So um, one of the things that makes burlesque different than other art forms is we don't have a fourth wall. We actively are interacting with the audience. That's a big piece of what makes it interesting. That's where it gives it stakes, is that I will stare directly at an audience member in their eyeballs, you know, and I will have someone help me peel off my glove and we wait, go out into the audience, like in the same way that like drag does too. But like, we're not pretending that we're up on stage and, and the action is happening yeah. and the audience is, is not there. Like in the way that like most theater works is you're pretending the audience isn't there. Um, although sometimes people break the fourth wall. We just don't even yeah. have it at all. Um, so when we don't have an actual live audience, right. some performers were like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not doing a virtual show. That's that's nothing. That does nothing for me. There's no audience. I'm not getting no feedback. It's not fun. There's also the really big piece that for those of us who are fortunate enough to have space to do it in and to have the technology to be able to do virtual shows, it, it afforded us a chance to make different stuff and to do experimental things and to reach audiences that couldn't yeah. physically get to our shows, whether it be because they live in a different city or because... Yeah. They don't want to deal with center city parking or because the building isn't accessible. So it created chances for us to work with people all over the world. I got to perform with people while they were in different countries. Um, You know, they're in their bedroom in Toronto and (laughs) I'm in my living room in Philadelphia. And then somebody else who like, for instance, one of one of my favorite disabled performers, Jacqueline Bach, she's like a huge deal in our industry. I, I can't. Booker in Philly. There's like 
no venues I can afford that I would be able to bring her into. So I got to actually perform with her in a virtual show and stuff like that. So there were advantages to it, but there's a degree of privilege involved in having the space to shoot and having like the technology to do it. And I'm really fortunate that I live with a partner who's like a tech person and who was like real amped to be able to like help me set this up and it gives us something to do. So it really, really impacted the industry because a lot of people left. Some people just took a breather for a couple of years and some people just straight up retired because they're like, you know, two years in the entertainment industry, especially like yeah. live nightlife is a generation. So some people are just like, all right, that's my cue. Um, so it really did change the shape of things. However, I feel like nature is healing and we yes. have like a couple new cohorts coming in, at least locally. It seems yeah. like and, and when yeah. I've traveled with with shows, it seems like it's happening other places, too. Like people are back at it. So. It seems like we're we're coming back, and I think that there are hopefully some positive changes as a result. There's still some virtual shows because people did find, again, that increases access. Um, it's a lot of yeah. work, but um, for for those for whom it is their only way of accessing it, it's great. Yeah. Well, you've just described um, the question of, of access and privilege, the old way of interacting with the audience and the new one. Um, it feels like in order to be successful in a space like that, you have to be willing to hold seemingly opposite sentiments and tension together. Is that fair to say? I'm not sure I understand. Um, tell, tell me I mean, more. Like, I mean, like, it, feel, it feels like you, you talked about the question of access and privilege. <laughs> like, um, you have to have a certain level of technical privilege to be able to offer the level of access that's necessary. Um, and some people, some, and, and while that allows people to see it on the internet, there are a lot of people who will just say, no, no, thank you. Like it's, it's not, it's not a live room, but at the same time, those people, as I agree with you, I can count the number of rooms in one hand that would allow for not even necessarily compliant with ADA guidelines, but at least accessible via ADA guidelines. Like is, it just seems like there's, there's, there's some I, I'm not sure if it's tension, but it just seems like two ideas that that might not necessarily seem like the exact, seem like they they jive together. But then, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, so this is also goes back to I have a lot of experience and like volunteering for political campaigns and doing like political activism. It's very important to me, like sexual freedom, reproductive justice, LGBTQ rights like a lot of things that have, have been involved in for many, many, many years. And there are always the question of like, if your anarchist feminist group can only find free space in a spot yeah. that requires yeah. you to walk up a flight of stairs, what, you know, like how, you know, how do you square that? Right? Like, yeah. because on one hand, it's like, what are your ideals then? If not everybody can be here, then you're not living your ideals. But on the other hand, do you want to get anything done? And it's hard yeah. to like to do that. So sometimes yeah. it's like I think I think the answer is to just make a lot of different inroads, to make a lot of different ways for people to participate so that everybody can be present and involved to the way that makes sense for them. I think that's the answer. Um rather than like yeah. biting at people because they didn't do it perfectly. But that said, right. you know, the groups to which I belong will always be the ones that don't have all of the bells and whistles and don't have all the fancy stuff. I, you know, that's just the nature of it. So I think it's just like, do your best yeah. at the time. Yeah. Like, you know, when we, we would do, um, virtual shows, even in the before times, um, 
you know, just to make sure that people could join us. Like we didn't necessarily get a huge turnout on there, um, but it was sure. it was about yeah. the the people who definitely were watching. Like I used to be an organizer in this group yeah. called Sex X. It was basically like TEDx talks, but it was all about sexuality. And it was a really cool organization. We were able to do five Love years it. worth of activism. We put on an entire like four or five day conference and it was a really cool thing and we just kept getting deplatformed by social media just for existing for being about sex positivity it's not like we were putting up like nudes it was just like you know what what's my recourse if if facebook takes me down nothing um yeah something like that so we just kept getting deplatformed and we sort of like went off to go do other stuff but um yeah we would have events that were right. in places that required stairs and and so we learned how to do live streaming back then just because <laughs> like that's yeah. the only way to make sure that our our people could could attend it, it's as you said um you couldn't possibly serve everyone and if you tried you wouldn't serve anyone well yeah and there's just there's no there's no one size fits all solution to anything i, I want to ask um a, a very specific question when you look at the when you look at the landscape as we're increasingly lifting lockdowns and being allowed to come back to live theater. Um, what sorts of innovations do you see in shows and performers that either wasn't there before, or at least wasn't, wasn't readily apparent? I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I think we, we've learned a little bit more about how to make mixed media performance, right? Because we had to do all this stuff on video. And yeah. I used to run a show called Agitated with a, a drag queen uh, called Pilar Salt, who's a friend of mine who's a theater artist. And we're both just very, very political. And so we created a show where it was just all politics-based performance, drag, burlesque. Uh, we would bring in actors. We would bring in comedians, just whatever. Um, and the whole point was just like, you're going to get paid to make a unique piece of art that is about some sort of political point. And we um ended up using like mixed media a lot for that so there'd be video in the background i started doing burlesque acts with a powerpoint going behind me <laughs> so that was a that was a feature like for instance the first one of the first shows we did i just like to uh write up the citizens united decision i was like how many people understand what that was and know what it was about and so i did an act where it was like and this was before i knew um, I, it was like a Marilyn Manson song playing and I'm stripping on stage, just like just regular old strippery moves, nothing um, choreography wise different. And in the back is a PowerPoint that is in small pieces over the course of four minutes explaining the Citizens <laughs> United decision just as to be like, you can look wherever you want to for the next four minutes. And that in and of itself is saying like, oh, wherever you look is kind of like the reason you don't know why Citizens United is the way that it, you know, it is, is because um, yeah, there are so many things to pay attention to. And it doesn't mean that whatever you paid attention to wasn't important, right? Like, I'm not judging people for not being up to date on the Supreme Court decision that says that businesses are people and you're allowed to donate whatever you want to, to political campaigns, which is what it did. I don't judge you for having other things to look at. So, like, that, that was kind of the point there. But um, that was years ago, so that doesn't answer your question. But <laughs> I think that we now no, we now have a lot of uh, baby performers who came in during the era of virtual shows, yeah, and so they wow. have this whole other arsenal of skills, and they are able to set up like their own 
photo shoots, they don't necessarily need to like have uh, a paid. F- I mean, you still definitely can hire a professional photographer and, and have like a proper yeah. shoot with a setup and all that. Or you can, you know, there's a lot of ways you can do that. But a lot of them have now had to learn how to do it on their own because you had a couple of years with nothing to do. <laughs> like, yeah. If you wanted to get into this sort of thing and there weren't shows to be in, you have to make exactly. your own content. That that feels like it just reinforces this language. I'll add a word um, because because the art the art of burlesque, as you describe it, to me, I hear it's always been something that's has a, a twinge of resistance mm-hmm. to the, to the machine, um, and and it's it's always been the art form of as as you said uh, the common person, um, not not a. Um, I I'm sitting in in Connecticut among a lot of anglophiles, <laughs> so I'll say not a not a very posh. Um, Sometimes it wants to be peace. Sometimes it really wants to be right. But um, the, the the language that I'll use is scrappy. Ooh, it feels I love scrappy. Um, and I just kind of yeah. Um, it just it it's so it's it's so burlesque in its own like meta of meta ways. Like no, not not Mark Zuckerberg of ways, but mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. I I, wa- I want to pivot a little bit, um, do like a, a little bit of an either or sort of speed round uh, for those of our for those of our listeners who are uh, visually impaired. Um, I'm sitting in a very vanilla sort of background. Um, Honey Tree Stroke. Dr. Timory has this incredible um, white apartment with lots of beautiful art. Um, you've got an ombre of this incredible um, cerulean blue and purple. Um, Quick, uh, quick speed round. Favorite, um, favorite hair color. Ooh. Um, I, I was red for a really long time. That's my natural color, so I still do have like a place in my heart for that. But like, uh, rocking the purple has felt very like, th- yep, this is how it should have come out of my head. <laughs> if you had to choose between reverting underground arts to its former owner or reopening the long shuttered Trocadero Theater. Um, what would you choose? As long as I don't have to actually be in charge of running it. Um, I, I I think that Underground Arts is doing really interesting stuff still. Like, I 
yeah. don't want to take anything away from them. And the truck was fun. Uh, I would love to have yeah. the truck back. That would be amazing. I know that it's logistically really hard to run a big ass theater. <laughs> if you could do a show on um, the, the, the Rocky Steps, the, the PMA, or on the steps at Pan's Landing, which would you which would you choose? Uh, you know, I think there are some burlesquers who do some stuff on Penn's Landing already. Like uh, Lilu Lenore does some things on the Tellship Gazela. Um, it's been a, a running show like during the summers. Um, it took off some years, but it, it's already happening. Uh, on the Rocky Steps, that presents some logistical issues. <laughs> with, like, stairs, but, but that would be cool. Yeah. I like like, yeah. The other thing is outdoor performance and like making sure that everybody is consenting to all of the movies and whatnot because yes, that's yes, always yeah. exciting. Yes, <laughs> I perform some outdoor shows. Yes. That's exciting. <laughs> I yeah yeah that you would never have to worry about that seeing like a bunch of a a, 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 a group of white guys, a lady, and one person of color doing a herald out out in the. Egan's <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks, thanks for the speed yeah. round. Appreciate that. Um, I'd like to um, shift a little bit more because one of the things um, that I so appreciate in the work that you did, you continue to do, is sex education. Um, at a time where more of us are feeling less stigma around being, at least around the language of gender. Um, are, are feeling more more open to to be more open with our presentations to have our expressions match our identities I, I suspect on, along the lines of other components on the the queer spectrum as well um tell me about the journey towards um to, is it a weekly column a monthly column uh i write a weekly column for for philly weekly and have for a very long time um that has been an interesting thing because to be in print media for a really long time is a strange thing. Uh, I got the gig initially because Steven Siegel was the editor of PW at the time, and he yeah. dug the stuff that I was doing independently. I've been a blogger yeah. and podcaster yeah. um, and or, you know that kind of thing for a while, and he was just like, come on over. And so I was writing there for a while, and there's just a lot of changes in editing in editors and, and owners over the years. And so my role has shifted and I imagine that's going to continue to be true. And and really all of my jobs, I'm prepared for them to change at any time. It's <laughs> like, that's the yeah. nature of all of them is they're very ephemeral. So even right. speaking now, I can't tell you what it's going to be like in six months, but at the moment I get to write weekly um, under yeah. the, the current leadership. It is much more focused on like me creating content based on prompts that I'm given Versus in the past Man. where I kind of had a little bit more free reign and I could cover more local things. So we'll see what happens. Um, I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad that I get to like, you know, get paid to write. That's that's an incredible honor. Yeah. That's the dream. The the piece that always struck me about all of the different gigs that, that you have and that, um, that make up the, the wedges of um, having what seems like one of the most interesting um, sets of employment in the world is... Um, you have a level of flexibility and and the capacity to entrepreneurial word alert pivot um, that that I, I feel like is a skill that's not easy to learn. Oh, yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk about where that level of flexibility came from. It's one of those things that like you uh, you adapt or you die, right? Like that's that's 
I can't speak to it being a skill set. I mean, it definitely is for me, it's more of a mentality. So there are a lot of folks who would feel deeply uncomfortable with the idea of not knowing how much money they're going to make next month. That number could be anything. And um, I understand that. And that's the reason a lot of people take jobs that aren't necessarily something they're like super passionate about. Like you you find joy where you do in in your work. But like there are lots of jobs that people do just because like they got to pay the bills. And that's that's real. I have decided to forego that stability to only work on things that I super, super give a shit about, <laughs> that, I, that I am passionate about. And that is uh, the decision I made that is not necessarily a smart decision, but it's mine. And I like it. And uh, I have, I've had times in my life where I dreaded getting out of bed in the morning because I didn't want to go do the thing. And for me, the risk of the instability is worth that trade-off and I can't make that decision for anyone else. But in order to make that work, I have to be super organized. I have to keep track of a million thousand things or at least do my best at it. Stuff's going to fall through the cracks. And then be like smelling the wind about like how things are going to change and noticing when I start to, to find like even the tiniest little indication that something might shift so that I can prepare to jump to the next thing or like set up you know like a ladder just in case or whatever the the thing may be and um the way that i that i operated i'm never going to be like a super big entity a very like major brand name famous person that's just not going to happen but what i will do is survive for a long time (laughs) on the crumbs of random things that i find scurrying around on the ground like an anteater so (laughs) like it works for me but I do think that it requires listening to the people in your field and getting a sense of how everybody is doing and what information they're gathering from the world and the community and, and that kind of stuff so that I can uh, take that information and then apply it to my own life and just always be learning and listening and then being ready to jettison things and move on to the yeah. next one and just constantly... It's the same as with your relationships, just constantly evaluating, like, are the choices that I'm making continuing to serve me? Like, or am I continuing to hold on to this thing because I just don't know what it would be like without it? So just being ready to just um, continue to learn and change like that just as a person, if nothing else. And and then I just do that on a macro scale. (laughs) Yeah, you do it at every possible level. There's no there's there's no level at which it's like okay. I mean, we're I good. do I do have some stability in my life. Like the employers that I've been with, I've been with for a long time. Like let me let me just be very frank. I'm not like um I'm not like fickle. I don't leave employers randomly. I will stay as long as something's right. good. Yeah, because like like you said, I've been at Philly Weekly now for I'm gonna knock on wood at the longest of anybody that's writing there. Like I I have outlasted outlasted. I don't mean to sound like that. I have uh lived through. Like so many ownership changes and so many editorial changes. So like, I'm just grateful. I'm just happy to be here, you know, like, and I'll, I'll work at, uh, I'm also a fitness instructor and I'll work at a, um, right now I'm repping Philly Dance Fitness. I've been working there for 10 years. Like as long as I like it and I feel like I'm being respected, I'll stay there forever. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, that, that skill of listening, of, of paying attention seems more appreciated than ever. That skill, d- d- do you trace like an origin point or like a, like a, like a Mulan style, like training montage for where that came from? I mean, if I'm very, very frank, I think um, 
you know, if you grow up in a household, I was an only child um, yeah. and I had to be aware of like I was, you know, I was the child of, of parents who were very busy and had other stuff to do. Yeah. And I had to be paying close attention to the cues of what was happening. So I knew yeah. what my strategy should be. <laughs> right. Um, I'm sorry. Somebody keeps honking outside. <laughs> but like, I think there's uh, a yeah. lot of stuff I'm finding on uh, therapy Twitter yeah. now about parentified children, right? Where okay. you have to do like the caretaking for the parent and that's the role. And I think that some of that applies and then having to be like a little bit hypervigilant yeah. so that you can, uh, let me use I statements, so that yeah. I can predict what's about to happen, what I need to do uh, for the situation. So I think there's a lot of things where they were tough yeah. facets of being a kid, but I was able to learn skills that have served me, right? And I got them earlier as a result. And so, you know, like the worst life experiences we have, there's still got to be something to get out of it. Like not necessarily like a great life lesson always, but like, I don't know. There's always any anything that happens. Like I, I like to go like, all right, so what do we learn from this? <laughs> like, right. I hope. There, there and I don't mean to say that in right? a way where if somebody's going through something terrible, like that I'm telling them to do extra work now and like yeah. find the silver lining. Like I'm not like that. It's just like, I don't know. I operate from a place of just trying to find gratitude. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. there's so much to be sad about. We have had this collective trauma for the last couple of years that never really came to a close. And yeah. even longer than that for many people. So like, there's not yeah. going to be a happy resolution. We're not going to have like a VE day <laughs> where we celebrate in the streets about the end of all of this. I think the closest we got is when it was like, November 2022 and Philly was partying in the streets <laughs> they counted the election results we got that I guess um, but yeah like you know stuff is tough and it's really easy yeah. to be cynical and sad and it's really easy to focus on what is difficult and how hard it is to push back against it but the only tactic I know is just to continue to have gratitude for everything that I do have that I'm fortunate about yeah. and to think about all the things about the world right now that are actually better than they ever have been in the past. And it's hard to, it's hard to draw a focus to those things. Like there's a greater uh, literacy right now than at any other point in history. We have so many uh, ways to prevent illnesses that used to just kill people. We have so many ways to treat illnesses that used to just, just kill people. And uh, there's lots of stats on things that are, that are going badly but there are also lots of things that are going really well and and i want to point to those things because those things are real and people work very hard to make them happen and it's just you know your like infant mortality rates are are lower than they used to be just real basic stuff yeah, I and i think about how many people um can live independently now that in previous generations would not have been able to i think about um there's you know there's this huge pushback against like LGBT stuff uh, happening in, in a lot of different countries. But at the same time, like we have so vibrant of a culture and the access to communities using the internet that never would have been possible before. People have always been gay. People have always been trans. But like now we have more shared vocabulary and the ability to uh, meet people who live across the world. 
like a lot of really beautiful things. So I don't know, like I personally am very prone to depression. So it's really helpful to me to be like, what are the things that I'm grateful for? Every time I get injured, it's a good reminder of like all the times it wasn't you know, like, and all the other parts that are still working, like whatever. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for gratitude as well. Um, it's it, it, I have this thing that I say where it's like, there, there have been so many things in my life that, that I definitely do not need to be thankful for. But when I find something that I can begin a day being thankful for, that's, that's probably the start of a pretty day. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to pivot a little bit more. Um, you, you mentioned gratitude, um, and, and how, how it sounds certainly like life-giving a thing that gratitude can be, I, I think is probably fair to say between the two of us. Um, what other sorts of like ways of being like those abstract things, or maybe it's like very specific embodied things like a strong cup of coffee in the morning. What sort of things like help tend the wellspring when like things are like really, really oh, I, like, I mean, sucky. The, the coffee is real. Uh, the coffee thing is real. Uh, that is a very real. Yeah. Um, for me personally, I have in, in, you know, it's discussing the, the wild mixture of careers that I have, but I have constructed a life around yeah. the things that I need to do for self-care to be honest. So I yeah. have learned enough yeah. about myself, my sleep habits, my, my physical needs. So yes. I have constructed a life where I don't have to get up earlier than like, I think my earliest class, I need to get up at like 9 a.m. for it, which is to a lot of people like you're a lazy bitch. And it's like, no, because I work at night. And like if if I needed to be able to work the whole day um, and then also be at a show until two in the morning, like I, I have to take care of myself yes. and, and build in time for for sleeping. So I have constructed a life where I'm not going to teach any 6 a.m. spin classes. I did that stuff when I first started years ago when I was young and foolish, but I had to earn yeah. my my way in and then I did. Um, so I carve out time for sleep and nobody can touch it. <laughs> it you can't do it. Uh, I, as a fitness instructor, make yeah. sure that I am working out every day. It is so important for my yeah. physical and my mental health yeah. to get regular exercise. And I don't mean yeah. like you, have, you don't have to do it for like four hours a day. I mean, I have at various points because I like that kind of thing, but it's also not necessary. So just like, um, you know, if it's just a, a yoga in the morning and then I move on with my life, like that's just still prioritizing that sort of thing. Um, just real basic, like remembering mm -hmm. that I am responsible for this vessel. So eat the vegetables, you know, <laughs> like yeah. um, don't eat things that afterwards are going to make you feel not so good. You know, get plenty of fiber. <laughs> like, Just honestly, it's real basic yeah. stuff like that. That is my whole entire key to my life. I don't have any wild hacks that nobody else has. <laughs> like, it's just, what would you do if you were responsible for a living thing? <laughs> yeah. And, and about this vessel, at least un until we have like a realistic and less race racist expression uh, of the, the get out surgery, like this is the only one you get. Yeah, it's the only one I want. I'm good. You know, like I'm fine. Like uh, there's that like thought exercise, like if you had to switch bodies with somebody for like a week or forever or whatever, who would you switch with? And I'm like, I'm kind of intrigued by like, what if I could go into like a pro athlete and just feel what that's like to be that powerful and just to be able to do kind of be some yeah. parkour guy <laughs> but like the thing is is like i wouldn't know how to run the but yeah, not right. just because i know how to drive this like car yep. doesn't mean i could drive yep. that one so 
all of this is obviously hypothetical anyway, but I'm just like the the learning curve of starting all over again. Being a baby is rough. Being a child is hard, you know? <laughs> I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I have to walk around yeah. through things and bump into it's things and inevitably fall. I already do that enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. Stories of wilds, bruises, and scrapes. Yep. Um, I, I, I feel you. Um, yeah. Um, my, my most, my most recent scrape, um, was very mistakenly taking too much luggage up an escalator. Um, I won't do that again anytime soon. I'll wait for that long ass elevator. Oh, escalators Um, are no joke. Yeah. Like, I can't believe that we can just like hop on them. Like that's, it's so dangerous. It's death. It's a death trap like, waiting to happen. It's really actually quite fascinating. The like the the things around us. Some things are like super bumperfied, right, and like made super safe. But then like we just go on yes. escalators randomly. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're just like one 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 errand shoelace away from a That's final destination situation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, but my my, well, my only question are where are Devin Sawa and Tony oh, Todd Devin in the situation? Sawa. Anyway. He's still acting. <laughs> he was in Hacks. He was in an episode of Hacks. I was so I, happy to see him. <laughs> I don't know his filmography well enough to know what would need to be rebooted in order for Tats us to see first. more of him. But um... <laughs> now is the time he can play an older Casper. <laughs> He's aged <laughs> in the ghost world too. Casper having a ghost mortgage and. Changing a ghost car tire and paying ghost taxes. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> never mind. No, 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 no. We're good. All, all, of, all of the parts about being a ghost that that are are the the nice parts to be liberated from. Um, yeah, um, very good. Um, I want to pivot a little bit um, to one of the pieces of work that that we've danced around but haven't talked about. Um, you have a show. Um, you have a PhD in human sexuality and sexual education. Um, you are, I, I think it's probably say, fair to say a prolific, um, a prolific oh, yeah. burlesque stripper here in the Philly market. And you have, you have a show where it's even yeah. in the title. You do both. I would love to hear more about where yes, the genesis the show is. Of the get show you a baby can from. do both. Um, it uh, basically comes from um, ignite. Like as a concept, so like Ignite Philly is actually how I met my my partner. Um, I got this email inviting me to come speak on like sex positive feminism at Ignite. And Ignite is an event that happens in a bunch of different cities, but I've been Philly. And um, it's just people give like a five minute talk with a PowerPoint behind them and they use the Pecha Kucha model, which is Japanese for chit chat. So it's 15 uh, slides in five minutes or 15 seconds per slide. So it's 20 slides. That's what it is. And the idea is that it just keeps it moving. And so if you have only five minutes to talk about something, it really distills it down to its like most important salient points. And people give talks on anything. Like the night that I was there, I I talked about mine. There was somebody who talked about like voting, somebody that was talking about like making these like big Halloween decorations. Somebody gave a talk on like, the techniques of making Tom Cruise look taller in movies. Like there was just a bunch of stuff. It was very cool. And um, so my partner is also involved in burlesque as an MC. And we were just hanging out. We were having brunch and talking about how many burlesquers we know have like super interesting other things they could talk about because, you know, they usually have a completely unrelated day job. Um, And also just they're interesting people. Like 
they have they have fascinating life experiences they can talk about. And we're like, would people want to hear strippers talk? And I think so. Um, so let's see. And we did yeah. the show at Ruba, and I was shocked. We like sold out immediately. People were like, Yeah, I definitely want to hear strippers talk about stuff. And they came up with really interesting topics. Our very first talk uh was on the myth of sleeping beauty, I think, and it's different incarnations as it existed. Like, you know, it Disney didn't start it, obviously, but just like the um, the historical uh, ways in which that that myth has shown up. And there was a talk that was all about yeah, um, like pre-K education and one that was on like dental care and like just a bunch of stuff. I think I talked yeah. about the origin of or the history of how like Western science has tried to categorize and measure like sexual orientation, I tried to study it. So it was yeah. just, you know, this huge experiment. And I was just like, thanks everybody for taking this risk with me. Um, and the scary part is giving the talk. Public speaking for many people is is more terrifying than getting naked in public, especially if you're used to doing that part. Um, so like we just jump off this cliff together and then it turned out to be like this incredible high to have have that experience. And then yeah. um, that show has grown. So it's been in Philly since I think like 2017. We've taken it around to other cities. So we'll like find right. a co-producer in like Boston, Montreal, New Orleans. We just took it to San Diego and to Denver. Yeah. Uh, we have toured with right. it. And then we had a tour planned in March of 2020. <laughs> and then it really work out, but like we're kind of back at it. But the idea is a five-minute talk and then burlesque in the same show. And it just basically is proving that not only yeah. are the performers who are, who are strippers, like, capable of also being competent adults that, like, it doesn't preclude the possibility. Uh, but it also proves that audiences are interested in that as well. And for me personally, it's a really big statement about the fact that, like, I know there's a lot of naked pictures of me on the internet. Yeah. And people think that I should therefore uh, be considered unhirable as a you know, a daytime professional. And I'm just like, if you think that, that just shows me that you're stupid. Like, like, cause like I'm super good at more than one thing. I'm sorry. You're not, um, or you don't think yeah. you are anyway. So yeah. I know that, you know, my openness about being in burlesque has closed doors for me professionally. And I, again, am willing to take this yeah. risk with yeah. my career. And a lot of people can't because their job, if they really knew that they were in burlesque, they, they might lose their income and I totally understand that and needing to keep those lives separated so I don't think everybody needs to do it this way but for me personally it feels more sustainable and authentic to be just open about who I am um and I, don't, I just think it's extra important now because like sexuality is um like a really organization yeah. a church a family a country can tell you you know who you are as a person if they can tell you how you're allowed to like decorate your body if they can tell you like who you're allowed to love if they can tell you like what you can do under the covers at night like there's nothing they can't control and so it's really really at the core of all other autonomy civil liberties like for every other facet you have to be able to say what to do with your own body so to me yeah this is a part of just like pushing back against this sort of fascist regression that's happening really hard in the u.s um yeah. and there's only so much I can do about it. But what I can do is create art, create art that creates community and people feel like they're not alone anymore. You know, when the overwhelming messages are so yeah. regressive that, you know, most people don't actually feel that way. 
Um, and a lot of the cool people definitely don't. Yeah. <laughs> the the work is therefore inherently political. It's inherently um, subversive. Um, it addresses some of like those those like deep questions of life. Oh. What does it mean to be human? Um, because like that, like what 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 does what is like what is our human identity if we don't have a level of autonomy that affords us choice over our own body? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you know, I. I have a lot of friends who are activists and, and, and we all have our like pet projects and our priorities and, and, uh, you know, like I totally yeah. get the idea that like none of this matters if we don't have an inhabitable plant planet anymore, which is a totally fair point to say like, yeah, climate change yes. and that sort of thing should probably be number yes. one. Um, but I also don't sure. feel like I can do a whole lot more about that. I already don't eat meat. I already ride a bicycle. Yes. I already, you know, like doing what I can. Um, but what I can affect is social change and these things are not mutually exclusive. So like we can we can see yes. that these things all help each other too by creating a world where pe the population is more educated and open-minded and and values art. They're yes. more likely to come around on a lot of other things too. Uh, and you could use those uh, communities like to then share other messages as well. You can You can also use those same platforms to talk about anti-racist things talk about like body positive things like yeah these things are not mutually exclusive i i often worry about this thing because we we live in the world of the 24-hour news cycle maybe even the six-hour news cycle i suspect but we're told that we have to care about so many things all the time like i i think this goes back to one of the things that we were talking about the the trade-offs of access and and privilege that it's it's I, I don't know how I feel about social media, whether whether it's going to be a net good or or a net negative for the world. But I, I'm grateful for the level of access and voice and agency that it grants people. But at the same time, I, I don't have the level of attention span or like energy in my body to care about all the things I'm told that I have to care about and to be constantly. Compassion fatigue is a real thing, and. It's yeah, it's, it's it's an area of study increasingly. It's just the idea of like how much can you yeah hear this stuff and and there's research on like the further away it yes. seems like you can do anything about it, the less you can care about it because you just can only we only have so much willpower and we only have so much yeah. like energy that we can give to like trying to save the world. But when it comes to like the social media piece, I think that it really helps me to have uh, read a lot about like the history of of other forms of media because that's the same complaints come around every single new piece of technology that that is media so like yep. it was like radio is going to make people stupid Amen. you know putting news into print form was going to make people stupid um you know putting it on tv was supposed to ruin and and the thing is is like there's there's real stuff with like screens and the way that like lights are keeping us up at night and the way that we are getting uh social media is designed specifically to try to you know like work like a slot machine and, and get us like this dopamine fix to be psychologically addictive those are real things but at the same time all of it is just the same as it always has been which is about how do we learn to adapt to it having the media literacy skills to be able to parse through it and teaching those things to young people so that when they encounter it it they are they are not overwhelmed by it you know in the same way that like it's it's our responsibility to teach kids like how fiction works, you know, like how the concept of like TV shows are like it's 
it's not real sometimes like a lot of <laughs> like but with social media we're just going to have to learn our strategies for how we'll be able to consume it in a way that isn't detrimental because it is incredibly important like the arab spring would not have happened with without like twitter like that's real and i think that you know as we're recording this right now uh elon musk who's just taken over twitter and everyone's like well it's fun while it lasted and there's not like really an alternative that everybody can hop to because like mastodon doesn't work the same way reddit doesn't work the same way like meta has its own problems um so we're all like i don't know i've been back on tumblr for a while because <laughs> i think that's the best place on the internet right now um but like it really we're just gonna have to figure out our strategies because it's like it's just a product it's it's yeah. just like sugar i have to learn how to manage yeah. my relationship with it you know it's not it's inherently evil yeah it's, it's got its upsides um there's so many things yeah. I've learned about because I'm on Twitter. Like I've become much more of an abolitionist about like police and prisons because that's information I wasn't getting. I wasn't finding that in the news. Nobody's talking to me about that on the street. Yeah. <laughs> like I found it on Twitter and I'm like, oh, all this makes a ton of sense to me. I apologize for the hard pivot. Um, I wanna I'm so grateful for the time that we've lingered to together today. Um, the last line of inquiry that I have, just a little question about impact in the future. Uh, same question that I ask every guest to end with. What do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Oof. I mean, I don't know. I, I have to assume uh, I'm having some impact, right? Like, I don't know how big the, the yeah. footprint is, but um, I want as a as a cancer, <laughs> uh, I want everyone to be yeah. kinder and softer to each other and more direct yeah. in their conversations. I want to normalize things in my community that weren't necessarily there when I got there. Um, and I'm not wow. the only one doing it. It's only going to happen if lots of people are doing it. But it, like things that I appreciate are direct conversations, assumption of goodwill, um, you know, talking things through with people and and um, treating everybody as though, you know, you. I don't know their story. I don't know their what what all background things this is reminding them of. I don't know how their day is going. I don't know what else they have going on. But to be... Uh, faster to uh patience and curiosity rather than judgment uh, um that's that's what i want the world to do that wouldn't be so bad at all i don't see a downside <laughs> me, me neither except except if we i guess if we dig into more stories like why people constantly um climb telephone poles and why we have to grease them <laughs> Uh, I'm fine with it. Good for them. <laughs> Whatever. That's a that's an interesting athletic Ugh. feat. I'm impressed. <laughs> it's um well it it's interesting for sure. Uh, um, Doctor Tamari, so grateful for the time that uh, you you spent with us today. Thanks Thank so much. You. For being Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to my guest, Dr. Timmy Schmidt. You can check out her website and follow her social media at the links in the episode description. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Our associate producer for this episode is Kia Watkins. If you enjoy listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love, 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 love questions and feedback. 
You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good. <laughs>